Welcome to Helium Podcast. We believe researchers should only struggle to solve the problems of scientific inquiry, and the rest should be a bunch simpler. I'm Matt. And I'm Christine. And we're your hosts for Helium Podcast. Although the funding environment cannot currently be defined as favorable, our guest today, David Jasby, talks about targeting mission agencies to find places where your research goals will resonate. Dr. David Jasby is a professor at UCLA in water resources engineering. He shares our academic family tree, also originating from the Mark Wisner Lab, and we were very happy to reconnect with our old friend and talk with him about his path to success since that time, including the realization of his surfing dreams. Yeah, he's made it all the way back to the West Coast in L.A., so it's pretty exciting, and I think he's got a story during this episode where he's tracking down a program manager at the Office of Naval Research, and I think this episode, that story alone is worth listening to this episode for. A quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by MyProfessorWebsite.com, creating standout websites with strong messaging for academics. Check out the site for a free guide on the top five things a great research group website should always include. Well, welcome, David. We're so glad to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Very exciting. It's a great excuse to talk to you. So I guess one of the reasons we thought of you when we were starting this is that you're an example of somebody who has kind of navigated this, starting up a research group. Recently, you have tenure, you've you made it, you figured it out, and um, you've always been really good at kind of distilling some of the tricks of the trade that you learned along the way. So we wondered if you would just kind of um, have a conversation with us, revealing how you, you might help other people get out of their own way and get to efficiency. Sure. Fire away. <laughs> awesome. So people might be wondering a little bit just about your you and your background, David, just by way of introduction. I mean, of course, we're familiar with you because we, we've known you for years. But can you tell us a little bit how you, how you came to be a professor at UCLA? Sure. So uh, I never really wanted to be a professor when I was a kid. I wanted to be a professional surfer. <laughs> that did well, not you're in California. Out. That did not pan out for me, though. So uh, I started off with a... An undergraduate degree in biology with, uh, I, I studied a lot of math too. And, uh, I, and then, and then I, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I, uh, decided to actually, my wife said, you should look into environmental engineering. You might think that's interesting. And knowing absolutely nothing about it, I applied for a program at UC Davis and, uh, they admitted me. And then I got my master's and I, and I said, you know, I'm done with school. And I went and got a job for about a year, consulting in North Carolina. And I didn't really like that job very well. It was fine. It was a good job, but I, I wanted to go back to doing some research. So I went back, uh, when, you know, where I met you guys at Duke University, did my PhD with Mark Wisner, uh, in uh, environmental engineering, did most of my, uh, thesis work on sort of how do nanoparticles and nanomaterials, um, in the environment, looked at a lot of aggregation, photocatalytic processes, things like that. And then needed a job when I graduated. I already had two children and needed a paycheck. And, uh, I, thought I thought I'd give, you know, uh, this professor thing a try. And uh, I applied for 37 jobs that year. 
And I ended up with an offer from, uh, several, several offers. The offer I accepted was, uh, from UC Riverside. And that's where I started in the chemical and environmental engineering department. And that was a very fortunate place for me to land because what happened there was that, uh, I ended up, so the department where I, where I ended up uh, at, uh, had gone through a spurt of hiring that my year and the year before they hired six people total. And the year before me, there were some very, very good chemical engineers who were hired and not, not at all in working in water or anything like, like that. But, uh, what I ended up ha- happening was I made very good friends with two of those people and we, um, they kind of showed me the ropes to, um, how to be an assistant professor. And I had a real wake-up call. When at the UC system, everything is very transparent, which is very lucky. And I got to see their the people who started a year before me. I got to see their file. And in, the, in their file, um, every year you get to see everybody's file, basically, whenever they go up for promotion or something. And uh, in, that, in that file, I saw how many proposals they actually wrote that year. Not necessarily got funded, but how many they wrote. And each one of them had written about 15 proposals that, during that first year. That really lit a fire under my butt because I realized that um, in order, and these people are very, very successful. They're much more successful than me. And, you know, these, these people at the top of the field, in their, in their respective field. And when I, when I, I realized that that's sort of what it takes, you know, you just have to sit down and write proposals. And that's the first step. And I've been doing that ever since. And I try to write between 10 and 15 proposals a year. Uh, and I always figure if you're not doing that, you're not doing enough because, um, of course, not all, not every single one of these proposals is a unique idea. You recycle a lot because there's a lot of rejection uh, in life as an academic, but you have to are constantly looking for opportunities. And, and the trick I think for uh, people in our field, sort of environmental engineering, which is not like chemical engineering and where, we have more limited funding opportunities. There isn't that lar- those large pools of money, for example, from the Department of Defense or Department of Energy that uh, are usually available for environmental engineers. But the trick is to try to fit what you do to some of the uh, some of the broader calls from the mis- mission agencies, not just to focus on the National Science Foundation, but to really you know re- really spread out. And uh, when you start looking around, you start realizing that there are indeed opportunities for or people working in all fields. But really the trick is to trying to tailor your research to the needs of some of the mission agencies, specifically DOD and DOE and USDA as well. That was very rambling. No, that was really practical and exactly to the type of uh, kind of strategic guidance I think people are interested in. I had a follow-up question to one of the things you said. So when you kind of brought in your umbrella of things that you look for, you're going past NSF or if you're an NIH person, do you have advice on, you know, is a mix of total cold call for program officers and whether your idea might fit, or do you have kind of a a sort of set of rules that you go about just investigating and putting your time, figuring out that you should put your time toward one of these kind of more foreign calls? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think what people what I've realized is when the agencies put out their either a broad agency announcement for DOD or some of the, you know, the, the FOAs for DOE or whatever you want to call it or USDA 
they always have these priority areas that they're interested in. And from my experience, you really need to address those priority areas. You can't just, it's not an open call like NSF where you, you know, you can just submit whatever you want and it goes in front of a panel of your peers essentially. And they make the call whether this is worthy of investigation or not. A lot of the agencies don't work in the same way. Um, oftentimes the peer review is done by, is done internally by scientists, staff scientists, for example. Uh, maybe there is no limited, there may be very limited input from academics. And, um, they have problems that they need to solve. And if you're not addressing their problem, then they're not going to give you money. They're not going to fund you. It doesn't matter how cool or interesting or innovative your research is. I mean, they have a mission that they need to, they need to, uh, service. So it's very important to tailor your proposals to real needs. And if you don't think that you're going to be doing that effectively, then there's really no point in, in applying. And you, cause you could be writing a, a perfect proposal, but it's just not, you're just not answering, you're answering the wrong question. So what did you think in terms of the, in terms of these agency specific calls? I mean, I think I want to dig a little bit deeper on this question because I think Christine was talking about cold calling in a way of like a lot of people, the, the strategy I see them take is sort of to warm up the program officer or the, or the program manager so that you meet them at a conference and you, you, you just start to get to know them so that they're, that they actually know to kind of expect your proposals. So you, you, what you're, I think what I hear you're saying is that as long as you're hitting the appropriate targets that they're calling for, then that kind of activity isn't as, as necessary. It's certainly helpful to do that, that kind of work, that kind of prep work, but it's not, I don't, I don't think it's absolutely critical to do that. Uh, I, I can't, can't hurt your, your prospects and what that will do oftentimes, it might give you a little bit of a heads up of what's coming down the pipeline. Um, so some of these, some of these agencies like Department of Defense, like ONR is a good example. Um, this is the one I know. Um, you know, they have these programs, they'll fund research, but they're, honestly, their website is very opaque. You can't really tell from it, uh, what, what is active and what is not. You know, they kind of, so they, they, I'll give you my, my example that happened to me. Uh, so I work a lot on desalination and, uh, Office of Naval Research, ONR, has a specific division that deals with on, you know, ship, shipborne desalination. And they say specifically, oh, we will fund research on, uh, you know, reverse osmosis and other forms of desalination. So, uh, the way you, the way that agency works is you, you submit a white paper to an email you know, to the program manager. And I did that. And I submitted a white paper and never heard back. I submitted another white paper and never heard back. And it just felt like it was just going into a black hole. And eventually I, uh, you know, but in that particular agency, the, the program officer never released uh, their email. It wasn't available or sorry, their, uh, phone number. So there's actually no way to contact them. It was only this email. So one day I got tired. I think this was after like four or five white papers that I submitted over a period of two or three years that never, like not even a response of like, we, we received your white paper, you know, just. Wow. And so I ended up um, calling the switchboard at ONR and saying, can I have to talk with the program manager? And they actually passed me through. And uh, the phone rang once and then somebody picked it up. And it was him. He's like, Oh my God, I actually reached this guy. <laughs> and he was, uh, he, and he said to me, Oh, it's you. And he said, I, I would never pick up the phone, but I'm waiting for another call. So that's why I thought you were somebody else. 
Oh my God. <laughs> you just like, you're like, so I can confirm that you're not a black hole that I'm right, just doing. Yeah, like, there's actually somebody there on the other end. <laughs> so he, but you know, he's, but then he said to me something very interesting and it was very discouraging to me. He said, Oh yeah, we don't fund research anymore in this program. We're already in, they were on six, three already. If you know what that means. So, so there's the military has six, one, six, oh, money. The readiness levels. Yeah. So, it's, well, it's not, it's not as many TRLs. It's, uh, you're referring to technology readiness. So six, one at the Department of Defense, six, one money is the research. Six, two is like piloting. And uh, six three money is, is pure in already, so you're actually buying. Uh, they're actually going to buy some uh, wow. commercial benefit. So this particular program that dealt with you know on ship desalination was already in six three. So they were not going to fund any more research. All their all their effort was going towards actually you know purchasing and equipping the sh- naval ships with you know existing technology. They don't. They, they never say that on their website though. So you can keep sending you know. <laughs> White papers <laughs> into the abyss, <laughs> but uh, you know they would, they would never respond, and you know so that's something that happened to me personally. How often does that happen in other programs? I don't really know. Uh, so to that, you know, in that regard, Christine, what you were saying about you know cold calling people and finding out is actually a very good strategy, uh, but you have to be persistent. And uh, that being said, I've gone, I've gone, you know, I've, gone, I've been successful just submitting a submitting a proposal in response to a call. And I didn't know who the program managers were. I never met them before. And, you know, you write a good proposal, I feel you have a reasonable chance of getting funded. So with that particular call that you got, that's a great example. Did you happen to, because I, I hear your point about saying, if you are really answering the specific question that they have, then you should have a shot. So did you have really good insight into what they wanted because of some other intel or did you guess right? Or how did, how do you feel like that match happened? Well, I mean, if the agencies release a call for proposals and it's usually quite specific and they know what they want. They have a very, very particular idea about what, what they think, what they need to be done, needs to be done. And you have to address that. I mean, you're you're doing science. That's fine, but you also have to answer a very specific problem that they put forward. So, and 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 I, I feel that I've I don't try to when I write these proposals in response to these specific calls. I don't try to make it anything other than to answer the question that they're putting forward. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I'm not necessarily. I don't emphasize the science necessarily. I mean, you, you have to talk about the science. You have to make it interesting and attractive and new and definitely, you know, trying to think outside the box and not just do the same thing over and over again. But you, you have to be able to answer the question they're, they're putting forward. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for me because it, it's kind of like with these mission driven agencies, it's kind of like the engineering research center program that I'm involved with, which is we are thinking about the need first before we talk about the approach. And that is, that is part, that's an integral part of the ERC program. And if we're not doing that, then we're not fulfilling the need inside of this NSF program. You know, I kind of want to pivot here because it sounds like this is like these, these types of proposals were something that you put a lot of time in. And obviously you got a lot of leverage out of that. Now, was there something that you did that when you started out that you put a lot of time into that you kind of regret putting that amount of time into? Yeah, I was fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it. I 
I mean, I, it's not that I, reg- I regret what it, it regretted, but it, it didn't, it did not end up being as fruitful as, as I was hoping. And that was, uh, large scale, uh, work, meaning sort of at the pilot scale. And there's something very attractive in that for me, at least was because it, I felt like I was, you know, doing something real. You know what I mean? I was working at a scale that was not no longer bent scale. Yeah. It's tangible. You know, tangible. I was making, I could, yeah. And I could see how, you know, I was thinking about manufacturing already. I was thinking about, you know, how can we, um, scale up our production? How can we scale up the, you know, all the work that we're doing? Uh, it opens up a whole other sort of set of uh, considerations that you have to make. So in that regard, it was interesting, but what came out of it in the end was absolutely nothing. And, uh, so for example, my first contract, our first grant that I got was with the air force and, uh, Half of the project, well, three quarters of the project were in the lab. And then the last phase was actually to build a pilot in the field at one of the Air Force bases uh, to test the technology that we developed in the lab. And the technology in the lab worked very well. And then we went out and spent a lot of money and a lot of time um, building a pilot in the field. And we operated it for six months and it worked perfectly and it exceeded all the you know parameters that we set out. It worked. I mean, it just worked well. And at the end of the project, we, you know, basically it involved, you know, shutting down the lab, you know, for manufacturing, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the project, we, you know, I ended up going out to the Air Force Base to decommission the the, the pilot. And there was a lot to decommission, you know, it was a big reactor and a huge membrane system, and, you know, all these computers and stuff, analytical equipment. And I talked to the program manager and I asked him, okay, so what's next? What are we going to do next? And he says, well, you'll write up the report. I said, well, that's it? <laughs> he said, yeah. So well, why did we do this? <laughs> What's the point? We're going to left it at the lab scale. He said, well, you know, we wanted to see if it would work. And it did. <laughs> but that's where it ended. It's a r- big, deep-pocket military money. They're just like, oh, let's try this. And, oh, it, it worked. And just put it on the shelf. That happened to me again from uh, a different agency, the Department of Interior, for a different project. Again, I built a pilot. It worked perfectly, exceeded all the, you know, initial promises that we made. And again, you know, it comes to the end. They're like, okay, yeah, just decommission and write up a report. And I, you know, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm, I'm not entrepreneurial enough to move it to the to industry, but that's actually difficult to do when you're an assistant professor. That's, uh, well, it's a totally additional job, right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And when you're focused, when you're focused on, you know, trying to get tenure, basically, publishing papers, blah, 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 training students, it's it's kind of a time suck. And it, it didn't really do much for me, for my <laughs> career. It did, it did something for, you know, understanding a little bit how bigger systems operate, but it wasn't as fruitful as I was hoping. You know, something that strikes me as you say that is that it does sound like a bummer to be realizing, okay, I need to focus on maybe this different part of the information discovery life cycle that I was really interested in. But it is kind of heartening to hear that the thing that you felt like it was a time that wasn't as fruitful as you hoped uh, was related to your actual research pursuits and not kind of what I thought I was going to hear partially just because of kind of the informational interviews we did when we were scoping out what people wanted to hear about. I thought you might say things like, well, getting my handle around teaching took way too much time or 
you know, setting up my lab, purchasing all these other things just kind of robbed me of time that I could have gotten back if I had known about these tricks ahead of time. I don't know. Yeah. You know, for me, those two things that you mentioned, like teaching, I, I always, you know, I had zero experience coming into this. You know, I TA'd a couple classes or something. But I actually, I really enjoy teaching. It's always been kind of the fun part of the job, honestly. Uh, I like interacting with students and uh, I don't mind teaching at all. It is time consuming, but I, I feel like it's time well spent. And when you actually think, when you actually look at the pay structure <laughs> as, a, as a professor, you actually get paid to teach. That's, that's what you get paid to do. You don't get paid to do research. Uh, so you, you better like teaching. Otherwise your life will be kind of miserable. So I, you know, I don't, I don't try, I don't like, I don't try to get out of teaching. I don't, you know, I don't mind teaching. I've taught I think, seven different classes so far, six different classes. Um, it's, everyone's a challenge and, you know, dealing with students is not always easy, but it's, it is rewarding. And I, I, I certainly think of it as part, you know, like one of the good parts of the job, not one of the. That's great. You're like a department chair's dream, yeah. I think, in terms of teaching. You're not trying to beg your beg your way out of teaching classes and other things. Like, are you, I mean, I, I don't know. I never thought that way. That's good. That's good. And I and I think and I really think that you have to go into it with sort of an open mind because otherwise it's really it, it, if you're suffering if you're thinking oh my goodness you know teaching is just the worst it's just taking up so much time it's a waste of time and it takes away from my research time. And that's not the right attitude because I think, because I don't think that's a healthy attitude to have because you do get paid to teach. That's actually what you get paid. That's really good to think of. Well, and I wonder if you can just say, was there something that you can think back on that helped you make that switch from, like you said, only having a couple of experiences TAing to having taught seven different classes and feeling really comfortable in that. Is there any piece of advice that you would say, here's what I did? Like, I loved that you said 15 proposals in a year. If you're not going to aim for that, you're not serious. You know, is there a similar kind of piece of advice you'd give yourself if you could go back in time? For teaching specifically? Yeah. Just for, for kind of that really steep learning curve. Just go in there and have fun and try to pepper your lectures with things that interest you, you know, make the class interesting for you as well. So you have to kind of learn things every time you teach over and over. I mean, so I, I try to make my classes relevant to students by using uh, sort of contemporary uh, examples from the news. You know, so it's easy if you're an environmental engineer, because you're talking about like water treatment. There's always some water treatment disaster happening somewhere, right? There's always some spill in a river or something you know, horrible thing happening in the world somewhere that can, you can engage the students with and learn something yourself too, you know? So there's always some, you know, some nuance that you can look into like some different chemical or some different process. So that, you know, for me, I guess, you know, any, a tip is really trying to stay relevant with the, with the course material. And even if you're teaching something like fluid mechanics or something like that, where you would think, you know, boy, that hasn't changed, you know, 80 years, uh, well, I mean, you could use, you know, examples from your life or, you know, when you went white, went white water, white water rafting or, you know, fixing plumbing or something that you can talk about to make it at least a little bit more interesting than just, you know, deriving the equations of solving the problems. Um, so I, I think that's kind of important and, and, and really try to have fun while you're doing it. And that's, and again, if you, if you can't do that effectively, then, you know, 
this might not be the right job for you, honestly. I mean, I say that, but you know, plenty of people are very successful professors, even though they can't stand teaching. But I, I think that, I think that it makes your life a lot harder. There's a little bit of a perverse incentive structure, you know, when you're, when you're yeah. an academic, right? Because you get paid to teach, but you get evaluated on everything else. Um, so unless you're a really bad teacher, uh, it's probably, I mean, if you, if you shine as a researcher and your service is impeccable, then you can be a pretty lousy teacher and still get by. But, um, you know, that's, that's not an ideal situation. And, and those people are probably not very happy with their life, with their work. You know what I mean, they're always trying to get out of teaching. Uh, but that's a that's a big part of what we do. Yeah, and that should not be. I don't think that should be really like uh, lost over. Well, and I see the point of you should be able to ideally bring your curiosity to every part of this job because that's what you have leaned yeah. into if this is your life path at all. Yeah, and I think and also you know this is somebody I'm gonna I'm gonna steal. Uh, um, somebody's idea right now. I'm going to give her full credit. This is hundred uh, percent something that Megan Mowder told me from Carnegie Mellon, uh, who's much, much, much smarter than most people that I know. And uh, she, she, we, her and I were talking at one point, and she was talking about how the um, sort of the problems um, that we deal with in the lab and the kind of research that we do. And, and, and the point that was made was that, Research that we do in the lab is problematic because the kind of problems that we we as society are facing are pretty complicated. Uh, it seems like a lot of the low hanging fruit has been picked, uh, and you know these large societal problems are, are are complicated, and it's very difficult for a PhD student to solve a big problem in in the course of you know four or five years. And on, on top of that, if you think about a, a complicated problem, for example, self-driving cars. So self-driving cars are, are not really, you know, it's not a team of, of it's not some somebody sitting in their dorm room with a laptop solving these problems, right? These are teams of people that are sitting at Google or, you know, or Apple or whatever, whoever's working on stuff or Uber, and they're working together in large teams and there's research managers and you know, this is all a very coordinated effort in order to achieve a highly complex uh, solving a highly complex pro- problem. And the incentive structure there is monetary, right? These people get paid. They get paid a lot of money to work on this problem, right? But when you're a graduate student, you don't get paid a lot of money. Your incentive structure is to publish papers, right? That's your currency, and, and you're going to use those papers in order to move on and find a better job uh, or find, find a job once you're done. The problem becomes now, how do you work collaboratively within a lab group on complicated problems because somebody has to be the first author and on these papers. And that, that presents a problem because what ends up happening is you really compartmentalize these, these problems students work on. So they work on little things. And that's okay. That's, that's baked into the system, right? Because they're going to be there for five years. Of that five years, they're probably really only going to be productive for, you know, three if you're lucky, um, where they can actually generate uh, insightful uh, data and do the analysis themselves. Uh, so the kind of problems that they're really going to be working on are usually quite small. Uh, and, th- and that's okay. That's big. Again, that's kind of baked into the system. So as a professor, I think you sort of have to put away a little bit and say, and think, think to yourself, okay, you know, what is my real job? Here? What am I going to do here? And I think that one of my, for me at least, probably the most important thing that you can, that I'm doing is training students. 
It's not research. It's it's training students to be independent researchers and and teaching undergraduates just you know in general engineering etc. So I think once you wrap your head around that that you know I'm probably not going to build a self driving car uh, in my lab. It's probably not going to happen because it's not built that way. Uh, once you kind of realize that about the kind of research that we do in general, I think you can appreciate teaching a little bit. That's brilliant. Yeah, there's some interesting things there because uh, in the in these large center-funded projects, they're trying really hard to, to push for this idea that collaborative research should be rewarded and trying – I think the entire group of academics as a whole is trying to figure out exactly what that means in terms of when you go up for tenure because – for example, in, in, in the NSF, they're saying, oh, you should have a clear policy at each of the schools about how younger professors will be rewarded for doing collaborative work. And it's exactly the problem you described. And there's no simple answer to that because academia doesn't have, hasn't figured out what that exactly means and how you measure that. How do you measure contributions when it's not just looking at what a number of first right. author papers? And, it's, and that problem is compounded compounded with students. I mean, it's only for assistant professor, but if you're a student, you know, and you're trying to go find a job later on, uh, and your productivity is measured by the number of papers that you have, and really it's by the number of first author papers that you have, what do you do then? How do you, you know, how do you work collaboratively? It's almost it's it's there is a fundamental problem there with the way we do things. And until we solve that, um, I mean, I just don't know how we can tackle these really big problems effectively. It's, it's so true. I mean, there's it's sort of, we're intellectually libertarian and we want the benefits of like an intellectually socialist democrat society. And it's just, we have the structures set up where people are acting rationally, but it's not going to go toward the, best solutions to these complex things. What do you think that you would, would be the one piece of information that you would go back and tell yourself when you were just first starting in that faculty job, you weren't sure you could get, is there something that you would tell yourself, okay, David, just know this one thing. There's going to be a lot of rejection. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of rejection. And you have to have a real thick skin because it can be kind of nasty and, uh, but you can't take it personally and you just got to keep on trucking because <laughs> there's really no other option. I think that's, I think that's a great way to end this, but I actually want to ask you one question. So have you started uh, back up on surfing now that you're on the coast in LA? <laughs> With tenure? I went yesterday. Yeah, with tenure. Now that's also that also helps. I went spiritual. it's the life right there. Well, thank you for joining us today, Doctor David Jasby. We enjoyed speaking with you, and we'll uh, hopefully have you back on the show sometime again because we had a bunch of other questions we wanted to ask you. We didn't even get a chance to. So we'll uh, we'll definitely invite you back sometime. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to episode four of Helium Podcasts. You can find the show notes at www.teamhelium.co slash episode four. If you want to help spread the word about our podcast, please go to www.teamhelium.co slash review it. 
all one word. There you will find instructions on how to review our podcast, which is the best way for others to find us, except of course, for a personal referral. Our music is written by Michael Blake of Portland, Oregon. You can find him on SoundCloud or at www.mblakemusic.com. Helium Podcast is produced and edited by us, Matt Hotze and Christine Ogilvie-Endrin.